Amen. What's a shame is that amazing grace was under attack in the very, very early days of the church. Would you join me for a Bible study this morning in Galatians chapter 2? Galatians chapter 2, that beautiful grace of Jesus Christ comes under attack when a whole bunch of people create problems in the church, and it's still a problem today. Let me see if we can back up in our study, and if you don't have sermon notes, raise your hand, the ushers will have those so you can follow along. We've been going through a series, just kind of a random series of looking at passages called The God Forbids. And I thought this would be a little bit of a reprieve from just the in-depth study of going through the book like Job that we just done had done. And I'm finding that doing this is even more brain-draining, getting into topics like we did last week and this week. There's a story that comes out of Africa, Nairobi, had a problem back in 2013. Some terrorists came into the mall there and they shot the number of people. There was over 200 that were injured, 67 were killed. And one of the stories by one of the ladies is an amazing story. She and her friend were there at the mall and all of a sudden when the gunshot started, she dove to the ground and so did her friend, but they were separated by the table they were sitting at. And she could see off in the distance down the mall, down the corridor, that here were some of those masked men coming in and they were shooting at people. And right next to her was a man that had fallen to the floor from his table, and that man's phone started ringing. Well, she could see as she's looking, there's that man in front of her. She could see the terrorist down B, whose attention got caught by that phone. And that was drawing the terrorist closer down the hallway as he was looking and firing in the store. She knew he was coming her direction. She didn't know what to do. She thought, I'll turn off the phone. And so she reached under that man, his coat, and... When she did to turn off his cell phone, since he wasn't moving, she realized that he had been shot. And her hand came back and it was full of blood and she had the idea that to save herself, she would all of a sudden put blood, the man's blood covering her face. The terrorist, she laid perfectly still, the terrorist came up and it worked. The terrorist passed her by thinking she was already dead. She was saved by the blood of that other individual. Isn't that an apt picture in a degree that Jesus Christ saves us from damnation by his own blood? We read that when we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed, that we will be forgiven of our sins. That all of a sudden when we stand before the Lord, that when the Lord God Almighty looks upon us, if we have the blood of Christ cleansing us from sins, we will be allowed into heaven. Multiple verses talk about that. Multiple praises are given about that idea that it's the blood of Christ that saves folk. Not the sacrifice of animals, but the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Well, that message started going out in the early days of the church. And many of the people responded. Many of the Jews in Jerusalem, after Christ had resurrected and ascended, he sent his disciples into that city and they started preaching the word of God. And as the days went by, as they were preaching this idea that Jesus died for you, that his, his blood, not the blood of the bulls and goats, but his blood would save, there was a response. Initially 3,000, then a few days later there's 5,000, then we read about how the believers are added, then we read about a great company of the priests, the teachers, the Jewish hoi polloi, they were responding. And at this time we know that there's in the city of Jerusalem, some Gentiles are there, they complain about their widows, the Grecian widows, being ignored. But there's mostly Jews that are getting saved, that are responding to the gospel. And so what happens is God works a work that all of a sudden he scatters the believers abroad. And they start taking the gospel beyond Jerusalem, into Judea and into Samaria and into the lands abroad. And as they take the word of God beyond Jerusalem, there's a response one of the great persecutors, on his way to go outside of Jerusalem and persecute more believers, he responds. The, the Saul, the, the persecutor who later becomes the Apostle Paul, he calls upon the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse him. We read in Acts 10 how God sends Peter to go specifically to a household of a Gentile leader in the community, Cornelius, and share the gospel with him, that God said, you go to that Gentile. And Peter is so impressed that these Gentiles are responding to the story of the sacrifice of Christ. And then the apostles hear about the city of Antioch, that there's Gentiles getting saved up there and they need instruction. So they send Barnabas up there and he starts training them. And after a period of time, he needs help. 
So he goes and gets the new convert, the former persecutor, Saul, who is now following the Lord. He gets him to come, and together as a team, they're working in Antioch, and they're training and discipling and sharing the word with multitudes of Gentiles in that city, people who are calling upon Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their Savior. And then we read in Acts 13 and 14, as a result of this expansion of the gospel, the church of Antioch says, let's share it around the Mediterranean. And they send Paul and Barnabas, they end up Saul at that time yet. Saul and Barnabas end up going on a missions trip and they cover some of that, that eastern region of what we call today the Mediterranean or what they call back then the area of Galatia. And so they get this, this influx of peoples that are responding to the gospel and there's an enthusiasm, there's an excitement. But all of a sudden a problem arises. The Jews who are calling upon Christ, they're still, many of them are hanging on to their old traditions. And those traditions have been there for generations. And God gave them some of their traditions, the dietary law, the, uh, the idea of separation, the, the feast days, the keeping of the Sabbath. And now the discussion is, do we have the modern responders? Do we have the, the Gentiles who are coming to Christ? Do we have them follow those ancient rules? Should they follow the law, which came from God and was there for all those years? Should they now have to be circumcised? Should they keep the Sabbath? Should they do the feast days? Should they do the dietary restrictions? And it becomes such an issue. And such a discussion that it's, it, it's, it's a major problem in the church. Because, by the way, just for your information, Gentile, Jews weren't supposed to stay for a lengthy period of time under the same roof as a Gentile. They weren't supposed to eat at the same table. They were, if they went into a Gentile facility, they weren't supposed to stay there. And now they're gathering under the same roof. And they're hearing the word of God like in church settings like this. And... There's a lot, of, a lot of turmoil going on. And the arguments get pretty intense because some of them, this is all they grew up with. They've been doing it all their lives. I know it's hard for us to understand, but some people get stuck in traditions and they never want to change. It's like, that's my pew and don't you dare sit in it. You know? Or that's, you know, those thoughts, all of a sudden they get, they get ingrained in our mind. And we follow certain routines, you know, like in the morning and what we go through. Well, they've had these routines for life on a spiritual basis. And so they think that they need to convert the Gentiles, not only to Christ, but to those ancient rules. It's almost like the American missionaries movement of the 1800s. When they came in and all of a sudden in the late 1800s, trying to really convert the American Indians, conversion not only involved in their minds... Not only involved, let's tell them about Christ, but let's make them dress like us. Let's make them talk like us. And we are going to not only bring them to a faith, but we're going to civilize them. Well, that's what the Jews were doing to the Gentiles. They were forcing upon them to act Jewish, and that became a major, major problem. A major problem that all of a sudden in Acts 15, they have to have a council. They have to call everybody together. And when you read the story, there's tension. It's, it's one of those church business meetings that gets really intense. And they start having dissension is the word and arguments. And the debate is strong. Two of the people who are leading the debate that says Gentiles don't have to become Jews. They don't have to follow Jewish. The two leading proponents and advocates of saying, let the Gentiles get saved and that's it. We don't have to have them follow the dietary and the Sabbath and the feast day laws. The two major ones leading the argument are the Apostle Peter and Paul. And so they get up and the conclusion of that whole council was Gentiles don't have to act like Jews. They don't have to dress like the Jews. They don't have to be circumcised or dietary laws or feast days or Sabbath. We stop that. They get saved the same way we get saved, by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And they can keep their traditions, their culture. We can keep some of our culture, but we don't have to make them become Jewish in their background. That was the conclusion, to, so much so that they send out a letter from Jerusalem to all the other churches. This is what we concluded. 
based on the word of God, that there is no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And whatever our background, it's done. But that doesn't end the argument. The argument continues. The, do you ever, have you, can you think of somebody you know who is stuck in traditionalism and this is the way we've always done something and you tell them they don't have to anymore and it doesn't go well? They continue to do it that way? They continue to always make the ham that way because that's the way their mother made the ham. And that's the way their grandmother made the ham. And that's the way. And, and if you don't make it that way, you ruin the ham. And you say, that's not true. That's not true. And they say, okay, you're right. But they still make it that way. Well, that's what the, Gentile, the Jews were doing. So much so that all of a sudden they have to write another letter. This time it comes from the Apostle Paul. And it's written to that whole region of Galatia. And there's a huge problem that's starting in those churches. Well, I shouldn't say starting, it's continuing. The huge problem is talked about in Galatians chapter 2. Let's define the text. Let's, let's call it Peter's defection. Peter, the apostle Peter. Let me read what he does. We're in Galatians chapter 2. And it says, verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face... Because he was to be blamed. For before, before that time, certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. Before those certain people came, he was eating with them. But when they were come, those Jews from Jerusalem, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And so the, the defection is very, very simple. You, you read it, you see it. Peter comes for a visit. This is the city where... Paul, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are working amongst the Gentiles. Peter comes. He's having a grand old time. The idea is that Peter is fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He's eating at their tables. He's under their roof. There's no problem. But as soon as this group comes from Jerusalem, from James, who is the leader back in Acts 15 in Jerusalem, and I don't think James encouraged these guys to bring this up, but the idea is they came from Jerusalem, this group of Jewish so-called believers, they, they believe that we still shouldn't eat with Gentiles. They still hold to the Jewish customs. And when Peter sees them walking in the door, Peter gets nervous. Maybe because he's had debates with these guys before. Maybe he's been chewed out by those very same people. But whatever it is, their presence unnerves him. So much so that while he is sitting at a table eating with Gentiles, when he sees those guys come in, he knows they're going to blast him because he's breaking Jewish tradition. So he literally gets up and goes to another table and separates from those very people that he's been worshiping with and hanging around and having a grand old time. This is huge. This is huge. Think this through, that when he did this, this was the leader of the church at that time. The Apostle Paul hasn't risen to that point of leadership. Peter is the leader of the church. The book of Acts mostly surrounds him for the first 12 chapters. He has been the first one to go to Gentiles. In Acts 10, he took the message for the first time to Cornelius. He has shared how he saw a vision. He had shared how God had, had shown that those Gentiles had responded. He argued against those rules and regulations when down in Jerusalem they had the council. And now he's defecting. He's all of a sudden, this is major. He's been interacting. Think, think if you were sitting there at that table with the apostle Peter and all of a sudden Peter gets up and leaves. What does that say to you? What does that say when all of a sudden you've been worshiping with him and now he, he departs and he's not going to talk to you at church anymore. But he had a message on unity just the week before. Think how you feel now when all of a sudden he hangs around those guys and won't even talk to you because he's separating from you because you're a Gentile. Amazing. Huge. The defection was absolutely, totally dangerous to the unity of the body. And so what happens as the text goes on, we have Paul's defense of the truth. Paul responds. And when Paul responds, it is not sweet. Okay? He has already stated in, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, that I withstood him to the face. 
He talks about that a little bit more because in verse 13, the story continues, and other Jews, they got up and they did what Peter had done, insomuch that Barnabas was also carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, before them all, if you, being a Jew, live after the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Oh, you can just, you can sense you can sense he's upset. He's defensive of the truth. He is angry over it all. And it's amazing that he does this because Peter's a somebody. Peter's the leader, but he's done wrong. And even though the, the sense is that that Jewish element is still there, the bullies from Jerusalem, the ones that were going to give Paul a hard time as well, Paul didn't care. This is what's true, and Peter, you blew it. And so he challenges him. Even though some of Paul's closest compatriots, Barnabas and other Jews at Antioch, even though they go along with Peter, Paul is so angry. He is so upset. He knows they have violated the word of God. So he withstands them face to face. Before everyone, he says it twice in the text, I challenged him. I, I told him, you are wrong. And he brought it out public. And the reason he brings it out public is what he writes later on. He says that if somebody who is in public position sins in a public fashion, that you deal with it public so that it doesn't spread in the body. And so Peter, uh, Peter has, has actually defected from some of the truth that he had taught, that he had defended back in Jerusalem. And Paul responds. And he is adamant. In fact, as the text goes on, it says that what I think Peter did was hypocritical. That is the word that you have in chapter 2 verse 13 for dissembled. It shows up twice in the King James. The other Jews dissembled and with their dissimulation the word is hypocrisy. It is that idea that, that from the original word that they are saying one thing and doing another. He considers them. He says that in verse 14 they walk not uprightly. The word is they don't walk straight footed. Their feet aren't in, in line with the truth. According to the truth, they're not walking parallel. They're walking at a, at a totally different direction. He makes comment that he was to be blamed. He mentions that in, in verse 11, at the end of the verse, that he says he rightfully deserved to be blamed, to be accused of doing wrong, because what he was doing was absolutely wrong. And then he gives his argument. So he defends this idea that these guys don't have to become Jewish. And his argument is confusing to some people. I don't think to you. But let's just explore it a little bit more. He, he makes a comment in verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not brightly, I went to them and I said, if you, and by the way, the way that this is verbalized, the way this shows up, this is true. This is a truism. If you, being a Jew, and you are, Peter, you are Jewish in background. If you have been living these last weeks after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as the Jews, then why are you telling these Gentiles to live as the Jews? Why are you walking away and saying, hey, by the way, if we're going to have fellowship with you anymore, you have to start following the feast days. You have to start doing the Sabbath. You have to start doing our customs. But you didn't do that for the last few weeks. But all of a sudden, now that your buddy showed up, now you're doing it. You're a hypocrite. You're an absolute hypocrite. Why do you compel them? Why do you force them? And it wasn't just, therefore we get the idea, it's not just getting up and moving from the table. He was imposing upon them. He was saying to them, he was telling them, they have to change for him to have fellowship with them once again. And Paul is so angry, he's so upset with them. And then he goes a little bit further in verse 15. And this is where it gets a little bit more complicated in reading it in our English uh, translations. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, like the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Let's, let's pause. Let's, let's dissect it. He is saying, okay, you and me, Peter, we're Jews in the background. We are by nature. We're not Gentiles. Therefore, we weren't considered great sinners in the, eyes, in, our, in, in the eyes of the Judaism when we were growing up. What he means by that is he is saying, when you and I were growing up, we considered the Gentiles to be really heinous. We called them big sinners. Now, if you're texting, it would all be caps. 
Okay, We call them sinners because they didn't have the word of God. They didn't have the morality, the moral code that we have. They weren't monotheistic. They weren't following all of these instructions that God gave. So we would look at the Gentiles and we would consider them really, really big sinners. That's what we did. That's who we were. So we who are Jews by nature and not Gentiles, who were really, really big sinners... And really bad off because they got involved with paganism, idolatry, uh, sexuality in their worship services. And so we, this, is, this is what we thought. We thought that those guys were really bad. If we came to a point in our lives that we understood that keeping all these rules and regulations, that they didn't guarantee us a place in heaven. He said, we came to that knowledge. You and I, we came to that knowledge. We realized when we were Jews, we and practicing Judaism, we came to a point that we realized we could keep all the Sabbaths that still wouldn't get us into heaven. We could keep the dietary laws that wouldn't get us into heaven. We came to the point that we realized all those rules and regulations, they would not make us qualified to get into heaven. We knew that. We understood that. So why would you now then ask those people to keep the very rules that you said weren't able to get anybody into heaven? Why would you do that? Why would you tell them they have to all of a sudden keep the dietary laws? You knew it didn't do you any good, but now you're making them do it. Why? 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 I don't understand it. Do you remember how this is portrayed in the Gospels? There are some religious people in the Jewish faith that even though they understood the law, they understood that it lacked. Do you remember Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night? He comes and he is seeking and searching for truth. And he responds to it, does he not? Because later on in the trials, he defends Jesus. And his, his idea is, though he is the, the scholar, the leading teacher, he is saying, I don't understand. How do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? What do you mean getting born again? I don't understand. How does this work? He knows the emptiness of the rituals. He understands that it and it alone is not enough to get him into heaven. So Peter and, and Paul, their, their situation isn't that much different from Nicodemus, except for they listened. They responded quickly. And what Paul, Paul does here is he introduces a new word the first time in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament era. Remember, Galatians is the very first book written in the New Testament. And so in the chronological order, this is the first time he uses the word justified, which becomes a huge word. And I don't mean to bore you. I don't mean to throw you off. But you need to understand this in order to really understand and comprehend how salvation works. The word justified, used the first time here, shows up five times in this very small text. When he uses it, it is his theme. He uses it in verse 16. You see it pointed point out in English three times. You see that it shows up again where he talks about that idea of being justified in verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 21, you see the word justified. Maybe you don't. Look at your verse 21. Mine doesn't have the word justified. It has the word righteousness. But the original word is justified. The exact same word that shows up the other four times in this text. And so he's repeating it five times that he's talking about being justified. It's a legal term. It is a term that would, you would use when you are dealing with, if you're in the court, you're the judge. You're there. Somebody is, is below you. They're being, they're being you know, tried. And you're going to take your gavel and you're going to pound the gavel and you're going to say one of two things. You're going to say condemned or you're going to say not guilty justified is not guilty is the public declaration the verdict that the person is not guilty it is that idea that only the judge can give this and he talks in the uses the verbiage that we have been justified by somebody else we haven't been justified justified declared not guilty because we keep the law because we do all these rituals no god made a judgment and god made that judgment because of our faith in Christ. Look at the verse 16. That's the whole theme. Is that God declared us just as if I'd not sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd not sinned. 
is the idea. It's, it's, one author was talking about how this idea was so stressed here that, the, uh, that he says three times, not by the law, not by the law, not by the rules, not by the rules. You, keeping the rules showed your inability. Do you remember in Romans he says that when I, when I try to keep the law, the things that I would, I couldn't. The things that I wouldn't do, I didn't. And he says it's just, it was a constant battle. Last week we looked at it in Romans. Chapter 6, verse 20, that when we were, un, when before people are saved, they could not do righteousness. And so what he's saying is, like he wrote in Romans, being now justified by his blood. We are declared not guilty because dietary laws. We are not, the Jews were not guilty because they kept the Sabbath. Not guilty because you uh, did all those different uh, regulations. Let's bring it to modern 2020. Not guilty by baptism. Not guilty by memorizing the Ten Commandments. Not guilty by giving money to the church. Not guilty by being born in a Christian home. They don't work. The only thing that gets God to say not guilty is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. And Peter, you're trying to tell these people they have to do something more to complete what Jesus has done. They need to believe in Jesus, but also do all these rules. And you're a hypocrite. Peter, you knew better. That's why you left those rules. You know that they could never justify you. Why are you throwing them upon other people? And so that's his argument. And his argument, he says it several times in this whole text. He talks about we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified, verse 16 again, by the faith of Jesus Christ. It's justified, verse 17, by Christ. Then he says that this justification comes to us by the grace of God, verse 21. We are, we are saved not by what we do, but what Christ has done. Period. We don't, we don't add to what Christ has done. And so in that whole argument, he's very, very adamant. And he's sensing it. It, it kind of reminds me of the story of the, this preacher was talking about a friend that he went with and visited over in England. The man had a Rolls Royce and said, hey, let's go to France. The man was rather wealthy. And I want you to go with me and I'm just going to you, give you a holiday tour. And so they shipped the Rolls Royce across the English Channel. And there they are. They're driving it around and they're in Paris and having a wonderful time. And the Rolls Royce breaks down. Well, that rich man doesn't want anybody to work on it, but he wants his mechanic from back there where he bought the place. So he calls the, the Rolls-Royce dealership. They fly the mechanic over that very afternoon. He works on the car, gets it running, and flies back. Well, they were talking about, boy, that's going to cost you a pretty penny. That's going to cost you a lot of money for getting that mechanic here because da-da-da-da-da. And so a few days later, he called back to England, called that dealership and said, by the way, just to know, I want to settle up the bill. What is the bill? And they said, there's nothing on the books about it. It's been totally erased from the books. You owe us nothing. There is, it's done. It's all been taken care of already. That's what it means to be justified. What debt you have has been totally taken care of by Christ. And so that's the message he's giving. And he makes that hypothetical. And now this is where the passage gets a little bit complicated. This is where the God forbid shows up. Paul shifts gears. And Paul says in verse 17, and and as I understand it, he is now speaking from a Jewish perspective. He is saying, okay, okay, let let me do this, Peter. If when we were considering Jesus Christ... And when we were doing that, we were seeking to be justified by Christ. He's taking him to his pre-salvation days. While we seek to be justified by Christ, those, you know, whatever it be, so many years ago. And if we were doing that, if we were found sinners, which the Jews claim, you stop following the rules. You stop following the Sabbath. You stop following the dietary law. You stop following all these things. You are a big sinner. He says, if that, if that be true, if when we were considering Christ, who, by the way, when Christ came, he taught us the Sabbath rules weren't all that important. Did Jesus ever violate the Sabbath? Did he violate Sabbath law? Yes, he did. Yes, did he heal people on the Sabbath? Yes, he did, because he said there's more important things than that Sabbath law. Did his disciples ever pluck grain on the Sabbath for eating? 
Yes, they did. Did Jesus ever say that it's not by the blood and the, you know, your relationship to Abraham, but you have to have a relationship with, with God the Father? Yes, he did. So when Jesus was preaching his message to Peter, and Peter was hearing this, and Peter and Jesus was making it clear that it's not by the law, but it's by faith in me. Well, if that's the case, then from a Jewish perspective, what was Jesus promoting? Sin. Sin was telling us to go away from, go away from the law. Jesus was encouraging us to put faith in something different than the law. So from a Jewish perspective, Jesus was a promoter of sin. And that's what he asked them. He says, Peter, is this what you're saying now? Is this what you're saying? Are you, have you gone back to that old thought that says that while we sought to be justified by Christ, we ourselves were found to be sinners in the eyes of the Jews? Is therefore, are you agreeing with the Jews that Jesus Christ was the minister of sin? And his answer is, God forbid you would think that. God forbid. In fact, he goes on, he says, you know, if anybody has done wrong here, it's not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, by saying, don't have to follow those rules anymore, he wasn't promoting sin. He never did. He says, Peter, just to tell you this, just to remind you, it's not Christ who was taking us from the truth of the word of God. Jesus was giving us the answer. And instead, if you or I take these people back to those things that mean nothing, that cannot satisfy, cannot provide justification, if we who destroyed those rules. We stood up and we spoke against them at the Jerusalem Council. I even gave a message when I was in Pisidia. And I said in that sermon, you are not justified by the law of Moses. If we now turn these people back and say, don't no, no longer believe on Jesus, but believe in your baptism, your church going, your giving money, we're the ones that are transgressing. We're the ones that are promoting sin, not Jesus Christ. God forbid, Peter, that you would imply that Jesus Christ is teaching something that is false. God forbid that you would question whether Jesus Christ's work on the cross is enough to save people. God forbid that you would imply to anybody, Peter, that you should add something to your faith to get into heaven. God forbid. God forbid that you would change the teachings of salvation by grace in any bit. God forbid. God forbid that we would get away from, you must be born again. You must believe in Jesus Christ. How dare you, Peter? How dare you say something like, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also need to... And Paul was, Paul was animated... Paul was excited. Paul was agitated. Why? Why? Why was he so motivated to be, to be defending the gospel of grace? Shall I show you real quickly? There's three reasons why in this text. Three reasons why he is so determined and saying, God forbid, this applies to us, God forbid that you and I would start saying to somebody that your good works might get you into heaven. Go to church and that'll get you into heaven. Get baptized, and that'll help you to get into heaven. Give money to the church, and that'll help you to get into heaven. God forbid we would go there. God forbid that we would start saying to people, you're not that bad after all. Maybe you'll get there on your own. God forbid. That's not what Jesus taught. God forbid that we would start saying that, you know what? If you just change your life and become a good enough person, maybe you can make it into heaven. You just do all the right things, and God will let you into heaven. By the way, are churches doing this right and left? God forbid we would change the teachings of salvation by grace and grace alone. God forbid we'd start telling people there's other ways to heaven than Jesus Christ. As long as you're a sincere Jew, you're a sincere Islam, you're a sincere Mormon, you can still make it. God forbid we would do that. God forbid that we would start saying to anybody... That, you know what, to make sure you really get into heaven, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to become a member of our church. 
And then you need to do this and need to do that, need to do that. And give them, reg- oh, you want to make sure you get into heaven? Make sure you dress the way I dress. Want to make sure you get into heaven? Make sure you don't drink coffee. Aren't those some of the rules? Yes? Y'all, make sure that to get into heaven, you've got to wear a tie on church on Sunday. Because Jesus, we know Jesus wore a tie on Sunday. (laughs) Do people add these rules? Yes, they do. God forbid that we would get involved, that we would alter the way to get born again by faith in Jesus Christ alone. He says, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid we would do that. And his reasons for that, his reasons he was so animated are threefold. Here they are. Because number one, Paul saw this. Paul saw the corruption of such air. He saw what he could do. He saw the danger that this was. To Paul, when he saw what was happening to Peter, he saw that even good men like Peter can get caught up in this. Now, not only was it Peter, but in verse 13, who else got caught up with it? Barnabas, Paul's co-worker, Paul's mentor for a while, and other Jews got caught up in this hypocrisy. It's easy to get caught up with the crowd under the pressure of others. And in reality, when they do that, they're promoting another gospel. Go back to chapter 1. Go back to see where he started the book. And in chapter 1, verse 7, remember now, this is why he's writing the book. Because some people are adding to the gospel. And he starts off the letter with these words. He says, I'm going to go verse 6. I marvel. I marvel. I, I don't understand this. Why you and the church of Galatia are so soon removed from him that called you into grace to a different type of a gospel. Which is not the same gospel. It's not another. But there be some which trouble you, who pervert the gospel. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than what was preached, salvation and by faith in Christ alone, let him be, what's your Bible read? A curse, anathema. And he, he pronounces that distortion of the truth of salvation by grace is worthy of being cast into hell. No wonder he's excited. No wonder that he says that this is something bad. You're creating disunity in the body. You have, look look in chapter 3, verse 26 and 27, 28, chapter 3. He talks about there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. We are all one who have been baptized into Jesus Christ. We are one, he talks about, for that came to God by faith in Christ. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. There is no more Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Peter, you're dividing the body. Stop it. He talks about chapter 2, the ending of his conversation. Look at his phrase. After he talks about and says, this is amazing. I can't believe that you're doing this. And he says, I do not frustrate. I am not diminishing the grace of God. For if justification, that's the original word, justification comes by the law, then we are saying Jesus Christ died in vain. And by the way, it's true. If you can get to heaven by baptism, Jesus didn't have to die. If you can get to heaven by giving money to a church, Jesus didn't have to die. If you can get to heaven by being a Catholic, a Baptist, a Methodist, joining a denomination, then why did Jesus die? Jesus died because there is no other way into heaven but by faith in Jesus Christ. It's it. That's it. And that's what animated Paul. Second thing that animated Paul is not only what corruption can do, If you start changing ever so little, but it's this, his own conversion, his own conversion. And he reminds us what happened to him. He says in the next couple verses, he says, I through the law, verse 20, I died through the law. I realized it couldn't get me into heaven. I'm not going there. I, I died to all those rules so I could live unto God. And then he explains how that happened. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What he does is in this text, which is a wonderful, oh, it's just tremendous. It's worthy of 10, 20 sermons all by itself. He describes his conversion as being personal. I, 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 this is what happened to me. Not family, not group. 
But he says salvation is very personal. For you, it's the same thing. It's you. It's not your family. You, yourself, must be born again. So he makes sure it's very personal. And he makes clear it's been provided. I have been crucified. I didn't crucify myself. Somebody else did this to me. Somebody else yoked me up with Christ. It's been provided for me. He talks about it as well with that idea of picturing how he's with Christ. And he uses this terminology several times in Scripture, saying that he's identified with Christ, that when Christ died to sin, for sin, he was dying for not Christ's sin, but Paul's own sin, your sin, my sin. So in that sense, when Jesus died, he died for me. For me. So when the payment is made, God sees the payment made for you and me. We're identified with Jesus Christ. And he talks about, I was crucified. I don't have to then. Therefore, because of Christ taking my place, it's with that substitutionary atonement. So that when God looks at Paul, he sees that Paul's sins have been paid at Calvary by the death of Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes it very clear. This isn't something I did. It's something that Jesus did, and I'm identifying with Jesus. He is becoming my Savior. Therefore, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And so that's, he's identifying that. And let me see if I can give you a picture of this. Do you remember back here a few years ago, George Bush made the headline news that he skydived at age 90? God bless him. Okay, I'm glad he did it. That's good for him. But the headlines read, George Bush skydives. George Bush skydives. <laughs> Who did it? He wasn't alone. He was hooked to somebody else. And he was, yeah, and he was, he was you know, a group, it should have read, the group helped George Bush skydive. But how is it expressed? George Bush skydove, whatever the word would be. Okay. But actually, somebody else was doing it. He went along for the ride. <laughs> Who died for our sins? You and I did. We died in Christ. Christ did the actual work. Make sense? Christ did it for us. We just went along for the ride. And then he says this conversion is permanent. I was crucified and it continues even to this point. He uses a certain form of a verbiage that gives the idea it's ongoing effect. Then he talks about it being profitable. I died, but I live. I died, but Christ is living in me. And what he tells us is that he got forgiveness. He got life. And he has fellowship with God. That now because of what Christ has done... I'm forgiven of my sins and Christ is living in me and we have this unique fellowship, God in me. He's guiding, he's directing and it all came because of Jesus Christ. There was a study done out of a hospital here not too long ago and it talked about what happens to terminal patients in this major city. And the, the guy who was doing the study wanted to know what they feared the most and the number one fear of the terminal patients was abandonment being left alone. So he put up cameras, did this study, and what he found is that on average, for these adults in this hospital, that they had two visitors a week. Besides the nurses who would come in, and then the nurses would be there shortly, and then gone again, because they were just on the meds, they were, you know, they were basically in like a hospice care thing, in terminal unit. And then their families would come, on average... Twice a week, somebody from their family. Which put it all together, on average, the time that somebody else spent with them in a 24-hour period was 28 minutes a day. And they feared it. But it happened. You and I are not abandoned by Jesus Christ. He is with us 24-7. We can have fellowship with God. And Paul says, because of that, because of what Christ has done for me and giving me fellowship and forgiveness through his sacrifice, how dare you add something to it, Peter? How dare you corrupt the teaching that I need something more than Jesus? Jesus is all we need. That's his message. Then he gives a third reason. 
Why is he so animated over this? And it's because of the compassion of Jesus Christ. Look at how verse 20 ends. Who loved me and gave himself for me. How could I turn on this Jesus who loved me this much? Who died for me? By the way, has Peter ever denied the Lord before? Peter, you ought to feel as lousy as you did when you were in that courtyard and denied Jesus Christ. You have just thrown the love of Christ out the window and said it's up to us. He doesn't love us enough. No wonder he's upset. No wonder he just concludes and says, Man, I'm defending grace, salvation by Jesus Christ and him alone, and I will do it to my dying breath. That's Paul's message. So what do I walk away with? Just walk away with facts? Let's put it into application. With what we've discussed, here's what you should do. Number one, do not, do not be led astray in any way from the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Do not be led astray. Uh, Let me warn you, you're going to be in the minority. Speaking this way, defending Jesus and Jesus alone, you're not going to be popular. Recent polls that came across, just one of the last ones done by Lifeway Research, just released a few months ago. They started the poll back in 2016. Here's the first question. Is hell, hell, it's a statement. Hell is a real place of eternal judgment for those who reject salvation in Christ. Agree, disagree, uncertain. 40% alone in America agree. 40%. Here's one. Heaven is a real place of bliss and reunion with loved ones. How many agree with that? Only 60%. Okay, okay, we understand there's a lot of people who deny the Bible. Let's take it a step further. Belief in Jesus Christ is essential, at least in part to entering heaven. Okay? Agree or disagree? Well, the majority of Americans say, yeah, you have to have some belief in Jesus Christ. But, each person must contribute something more in and of themselves to getting into heaven. Believe in Jesus plus something else. 52% believe that. Then we go a step further. God accepts all forms of worship and belief, including anything of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. American public, 64%. Now, what even shocks me more is this. Of those who claim to be born again, those who say anything goes and God will accept it, those who say Jesus Christ, but he'll take something else, 48%. That's almost half of those in America who claim Christ is their Savior. They are saying something else counts. By us holding to the the truth that it is faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by him. We are not declaring a popular message. But we're declaring the truth. We are declaring what is needed. We are declaring what God has said is his message. So you and I don't move. And if you have yet to do so, and you have never asked Christ to be your Savior, you need to put faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. There's a true story that came out of the jungles of South America. They found one of those remote tribes that was dying at an early age. They discovered that there were certain ants that had embedded themselves into the wood of the huts that were used in this village. And they had been there for an extremely long time. This was their habitat, their home. And when they would get stung by any of those, those ants that were there, those ants carried a particular disease that would in time kill off the people. And so the experts came in and said, you need to do something about these ants. They're shortening your lifespan. And they gave them the options. They gave them the options that said, one, move to another area where these ants aren't at. Makes sense. Gave them another option. Tear down your homes and build with something that the ants won't invade. We can build something metal. We can build something different than what you have. Use insecticides. Use something. Get rid of these ants. They're killing your generations. Their conclusion, when they were given all these facts, was just do nothing. 
do nothing. And they still die early. You say, how could they do that? Why wouldn't they respond? How would you not respond to Jesus Christ to be your Savior? If you know that your eternal destiny is threatened by believing in yourself or in something other than Christ, why wouldn't you call upon Christ? He's the only way. If you have yet to call, do it today. And then take time. For those of us who are here who are confident, put our faith in Christ, take time to express appreciation for what God has done. Let them know. I am so thankful, Jesus, that it wasn't left up to me in any way, shape, or form. Thank you that forgiveness is bought by you and I don't have to be good enough because I'm not. Thank you that I don't have to give enough money because I can't. Thank you that it's not dependent upon my family because whew, I'd never make it. Thank Christ. We, um, this week we celebrated Valentine's Day and it was a sweet time, I'm sure, for you. And I got a Valentine that is really, really special. Got them from the grandkids. And so that makes them special even if they were junk. They're special. And the one that I got, I've given you a picture and I'm holding it up here. It's got two little race cars on it and you can just, you can play with it. And he knew that I did nothing all during the week. So I needed something in my study to look busy. So now I can just flip the cars and, you know, work, work my one day of the week and play with this the rest of the week. So I got this. I was tickled. I was really tickled just because it gave me a toy. And my wife said, isn't that sweet? I said, it really is cool. It's, I'm really glad he went and got it. And she says, well, actually, he didn't. She says, I bought it in a kit that I gave him with all kinds of craft stuff. I paid for my Valentine that he gave me. <laughs> but I love it. Even though I provided it, he expressed something with what I gave him. He paid for my salvation. He gave me the voice. He gave me the word. He gave me friends to worship with. He's done it all. I wonder if he's as tickled when we say thank you to him, even though he's provided it all. And we should say thank you to him. We should sing to him. We should give him praise. Because I'm sure we thrill the heart of Jesus when we express gratitude for something that so often we just take for granted. That he would save us. That he would forgive you and me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for doing what you did. Thank you, Lord.